Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the latest edition of the Terrace Scottish Football Podcast. I'm your host tonight, Gary Cocker. I nearly forgot my name for a second, but there's one man's name who I will never forget, and neither will Roger Mitchell, given the number of bodyings he's been given by this man lately. It is Craig Anderson. How are you, Craig? I'm great. How are you, Gary? I am swell. Um, I am still in my house, as most of us are. Um, There is a birthday party happening a few doors down it is at least outside and under a gazebo um i'm not sure if they are keeping two meters apart but i'm not going to get involved i'm just gonna i was saying on, i was saying on the group chat like we went out a walk about two weeks ago and there's like flats around the corner from us and they have like a courtyard like outside area and someone was holding like a 60th birthday party in that courtyard and the reason that we knew that is because they had a live band playing in the <laughs> courtyard <laughs> and apparently like I saw and I mean it didn't bother us and, and I think everyone was like behaving it probably wasn't any risk but um, the reason I saw it is that someone was then complaining um, my wife was telling me on the Facebook that someone had phoned the police to get oh, it shut down the, I mean, you'll be the same as me in that we both live in suburbia yes. and the amount of complaints I think uh, there's a regular listener of the show who got in touch after one of my most recent complaints to say I think I live in Queen's Ferries. I think I know the exact Facebook group you're on about uh, because the number of complaints about, and it's always about uh, people that are driving, the youths, uh, cyclists, um, horses on occasion. Um, and it's just like, why? Or people coming back from the supermarket and complaining because someone went the wrong way. All things are probably a little bit annoying, but I just I don't know if anything would ever annoy me to the extent that I would go on Facebook and start a 200 comment thread. 
it's a it's a price it's a price you pay for living in like a curtain twitching area that absolutely um, and i'm sure we'll, we'll turn into these people in 30 years time we hope not but it's probably going to happen it's i can already feel myself morphing that way it's very disturbing um but what we have in store for you this evening is not more tales of suburbia um but we have a couple of a bit of a mishmash a bit of a uh, pick and mix of topics so we are going to chat a little bit about the court session not too long because not much has happened um chat a little bit about uh, a team in Dundee getting ahead of itself when it comes to managerial appointments and then we are going to close off by looking at the next game in our Classic Scotland Matches series. Um, so we'll uh, start where the court action has actually started today and that's at Edinburgh's Court of Session where Hearts and Partick Thistle are attempting to it's not really clear to me. Um, they're trying to do something, either get money out of the league or just not get relegated. Um, so you're now our legal correspondent, Craig. Um, so within all of the bounds of what can be said, and um, what's actually going on? I don't have a clue. I, I, like I, don't, I don't know why why I would be described as a legal correspondent when I know. <laughs> I, I mean, if anything, you're going to you're going to know more than than me about the law. Um, I I wasn't. I, I did consider uh, listening in for a bit because you could phone in or whatever it was. There was a dial in. And then I thought, do you know what, as much as I have been interested and invested in this story, because I'm like, from a curiosity point of view, I like to know like how these things work. Like I always think I, I could have been a lawyer, I decided not to. Um, yeah. Because um, I've got better things to do with my time. But um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those, I'm sorry, but in a bit like when you might have been the same as me at school in the, uh, when I went to get, um, you know, sort of guidance from a guidance teacher, you know, like just career advice. It was basically just, you could become a lawyer. And it's, I, I, I don't really want to do that. Um, and it feels like, you know, it's it's a career path that I think some people take out of an absence of really knowing um, what to do. Hopefully, I think the, the schools are a little bit better now. That, but back in our day, it was basically, you can either get a trade or get a profession. And I there's think, not I think a lot probably, else. Probably they, they just could tell that we were both argumentative and like a bit like we, we keep receipts well and stuff like that. Both of us are quite... Um, you're a lot, aggressive in that way and that's what you need to be in that legal profession you're a lot better at it than me i would just be in the court of session just like hammering tweets in their faces and you know chucking papers all over the place where you'd be a lot more precise about it um, um but, but, but yeah so, so i didn't i didn't dial in ultimately i was getting the new doors put in, in my house so i would have been um no doubt a bit facile anyway i don't think it would have been worth doing but from what i gather the don the same lawyer was representing the three promoted clubs and was rambling on for 18 pages front and back it sounded like um it seemed to be a long bit of that they went for lunch and i lost track of what happened after lunch but the the outcome was that nothing yet they've still not decided because this is basically not even a hearing this is to decide whether the case that thistle and hearts put forward is competent enough to go in front of the court yeah, That's my understanding. I think this is the, the big argument is that the, and I mean, this is all in the, the public domain, so it's very safe for us to say that the uh, the league's argument is basically that this is, you know, the league is a private member's organisation. Uh, it's not a public body as such. Um, and, you know, democratic votes were taken um, by the league. And, you know, obviously there's arguments about whether or not clubs that may or may not be supported by me submit their vote competently. Um, but basically that, what has happened is well within the rules of the organisation and it's out with, you know, it's not for the court to decide whether or not, um, you know, things have been 
unfair or not. And I think you yourself said in the previous podcast, Craig, that the I think most fair-minded people will say it's, it is maybe a bit unfair what has happened, but it's not, I mean, saying it's illegal is maybe a, uh, that's, a bit of a stretch, a bit of a jump. And and I, I think what, what this court hearing over the last couple of days is essentially going to boil down to is Hearts and Partick Thistle signed up as members of the SPFL to, to the SPFL rules, which say that these things should be adjudicated through the kind of football routes, so through the SFA and then to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. So I think basically the bulk of the arg- arguments in court, which is why I thought I'm not going to listen to this because it's just going to be tedious, which I think it has been, um, as to whether that that's, th- that's definitely what they've signed up for. But I think from my understanding, just because... I, a contract exists doesn't mean that if that contract breaches the actual law in some way, that doesn't mean that you're bound to that contract. So there's there's probably some stuff on that. But my my gut feeling of having um well I'm not saying I like to say if I'm I'm supposed to have seen them, but I have seen the um the papers that Hearts submitted. Um I don't know if I can I won't comment on them, but I have seen them is <laughs> that they're they're the argument they make is valid and fair but I don't know that they really showed that the SPFL broke the law. And that's that's what it will boil down to. I think that there's a moral argument and a legal argument all the time. I don't, I don't know enough about it to, to really say it, and that's for the judges and all these people to decide. But that's, that's I think, what's maybe been missing from a bit of the discourse. Like, you, you can't... The, the law doesn't care about morals. It cares about what's illegal and what's not illegal. And so, as you say, your, your own club... Had an interesting approach to voting. Um, it, it's certainly, it's certainly not a, not an approach I've I've, I've seen used much before. Um, it, I don't think Schrodinger's vote it both existed and did not exist at exactly the same time. Uh, and and it's not something I think I would get away with at the, the ballot box if um, you know when I'm when I'm going to put that tick next to the uh, cross next to the Conservative and Unionist Party as I always do, as everyone will know. Um, just just before anyone else jumps in, I, I've never voted for them in my life, never will. Um, but when you go and do that, I don't think you can then just kind of phone them up and go actually take my vote back. So, so there's some aspect to that. But if ultimately the rules say that's possible, well, everyone's signed up to those rules. Where do you go from that? So that that's kind of my, my view on it. It's like I can understand, I can understand that Hearts and Partick Thistle are frustrated and feel like they've they've lost out here. But also, I my feeling is that what they're claiming is not commensurate with. The situation they weren't, as we say this over and over, they weren't drawn out of a hat to be relegated. So, as much as the, because I keep saying no club should be unfairly punished by coronavirus, and of course, coronavirus can bear some of the brunt of the reason that the clubs went down, especially Partick Thistle. But ultimately, thirty games out of thirty-eight for Hearts and twenty-eight out of thirty-six for Partick Thistle were played. So, I think eighty percent of the the blame can go on. The football clubs, the managers, the chair chairmen or chairwomen or people who are chair people who are running the the clubs, um, and so that's that's the bit that that doesn't sit well with me. Is when you say, "Oh, it's been because of coronavirus," as if they were sitting mid table, coronavirus only affected Hearts, and then you know it's not like a natural disaster beset Tynecastle. Half the squad weren't able to play half the season because they were in jail because of crimes they didn't commit, and then that caused Hearts only to be affected that's not what happened so that's part of the 
the problem I have with that aspect, it's not to say I, I, I don't have sympathy, which I, as much as I, the WhatsApp group, I would, I, it would appear I don't because it's, it's fun. Um, I do have sympathy for them, but as it always comes around, you've got to balance it up against what was the legal side of it. And I personally don't think they have much of a case, but I don't know. So I may well be proved wrong. Well, I'm sure that um, cash-strapped hearts who have just splashed out six figures for Robbie Nielsen and handed Craig Gordon a massive deal, um, they will get the money that they so desperately need in these uh, straightened times for them. Um, I mentioned Robbie Nielsen there, so we should maybe move on to our next topic, which is Dundee United's hunt for his replacement. So as we all know, uh, cash-strapped heart of Midlothian in desperate need of funds decide to spend six figures on obtaining Dundee United's manager, um, so that they can, I'm guessing, uh, use him as a championship specialist to get them right back out of it. But what that's done is put Dundee United into a little bit of a bind because they now need to find a new manager with, at the time of recording this, four and a half weeks until the league kicks off again. So at the, uh, just to set the scene a little, although I'm sure people will know this and my guess is that this will be horrendously dated by the time that uh, people come to listen to the podcast anyway, um, Dundee United at the start of the week um, there was talk of Tommy Wright coming in, uh, and I think we can cover why that's unlikely for a couple of different reasons given United's structure later on. Um, but there was talk of him. Uh, Austin McPhee was getting quoted. Um, one of your favourites, Lee McCulloch, um, was also uh, getting mentioned, although it now looks as if he's going to join Robbie Nielsen at Hearts. Um, so then the talk moved on to everybody's favourite, Malachi Mackay, possibly mm-hmm. stepped into the hot seat, which then transformed over the weekend into Steve McLaren somehow turning up in uh, DD3 um, before uh, today, uh, again at the time of recording, it, looking as if Steve McLaren was going to reject Dundee United. So it's been a bit of a uh, bit of a roller coaster ride, not least for the bookies who have consistently been moving the odds about as they uh, take people's money away from them for betting on manager markets, which is mad. But um, to bring it all together... Um, I don't know where to start with this. This has just been, uh, as people like to say, peak Scottish football with uh, the strangest names getting suggested for their gig. Yeah, uh, the only thing that's been missing for me now is, is like a wild ex-player like getting linked with it, like 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 a former World Cup winner from like so. So like say like so, what we're looking at France, France ninety eight would maybe be about the right squad. So like Christian Carambo applying for the job or. Well, Jen, uh, Jens Lehmann applied for the Oh, job. yeah, no, sorry, he did, yes. That's so he's he sort of ticked off that box. Um, you've also got the boxes of former United players ticked off. So Billy McKinley has been quoted as, and he would be a, a serious shout for it as well. Yeah. I think he's currently assistant to Michael O'Neill at Stoke, so uh, you've got he's, him. He's managed before, and, yeah, and, and he, he had a good reputation. He managed in Norway, I think, or something like that, and then... Yeah. Um, he had a short spell at Fulham. I think I'm. I think I'm correct in saying that. I, I didn't. I, I'm, that's not research. That's off the top of my head. So I could be completely making that up. Yeah. And then you've got the likes of John Daly, uh, Barry Robson. I'm sure there's another fairly recent United ex-player that's been quoted too. Um, but I suppose that the big three that we should maybe focus on are Steve McLaren, R.I.P. Well, he's not dead, but you know, <laughs> it's my, he's not taking the job. Uh, Steve McLaren, um, Tommy Wright, and of course Malky Mackay uh, we should probably leave Malky till last because at least at the time of recording it's looking a little more likely that it'll be him um, and there's a lot to unpack there so let's pick up with Steve McLaren first uh, what were your thoughts when you saw that he was getting linked with the job I always feel like Steve McLaren has been has been very unfairly treated over the last decade over the last while 
to some extent because I think as soon as it went wrong for him as England manager, people forgot why he got the England job in the first place. You don't just get offered the England job because you're some random guy on the street. He'd, he'd earned that job at the time, both in his work as an assistant with Alec Ferguson at Man United and his work as an assistant with, with Finn at England. So he was he'd, he'd established himself as a very good coach, which I think he is. And then at Middlesbrough, he, he led them to, I think, their highest finish in 50 years. He won their first ever and only ever major trophy. And he... Uh, took them to the UEFA Cup final, which was one of the most madcap that I remember in the space of a cup in the space of like three or four years, Middlesbrough, Fulham and Rangers all got to that cup final and they were all like wild. Like Middlesbrough just kept coming from like three goals down with half an hour to go. Fulham were like pumping like they beat Juventus four one and then Rangers like managed to get through with like drawing nil nil at Ibrox in every round. Um so it was in that era but so McLaren earned that England job. Yes, it went it went poorly for him. And then he went and won the league with 20, which, yes, they'd been threatening it for a while, but I think it's their the first and only league title. And then since then, his career's been, been hit and miss. It, it, it's a dodgy time with Wolfsburg when he left there. I, did, I think he was at Forest after that. Um, didn't go great, but then he had a really quite decent spell at, at Derby County. I remember Johnny Russell yep. talking about it on the Open Goal podcast. And and he said, you know, they really the players really like working under him, and and they they couldn't really put their finger on they, they had the season. I think they were fighting for automatic promotion with like ten games to go, and then the Arsenal just fell out of it, and they, they couldn't really work out why. But um, and then okay, he's had a bit of a, a mixed bounce since then. But I think if Dundee United had got Steve McLaren, yes, it would have been a risk, but it would have been a really worthwhile risk to take. And. I think the other thing to point out is I don't want to fully go into the Malky Mackay chat here, but the very people saying, you know, look at Malky Mackay's pedigree, you know, ignore all the other stuff, just look at the job that he's done. And then those, not exclusively, but those tend to be the same people going, oh, Steve McLaren, he's washed up, he's this, he's that. But the records are, but they're not actually comparable. Steve McLaren has a better record, but in terms of timescale, it's, you know, Steve McLaren's good era was about the same time as Malcolm Mackay's good era yeah. at Cardiff. Um, and, you know, you can't really, you can't big up one without bigging up, or, you know, you can't defend one and critique the other. Uh, if anything, it should be Steve McLaren that you're defending more than yeah. uh, Malcolm Mackay. But no, I think one of the one of the reasons that he was getting cited is obviously um, Tony Ashgar, who is United's sporting director, um, is he seems to have quite a good relationship with a few members of the press. So you do tend to see things about United in the press maybe a day or two before they happen, and those tend to come to pass. Um, so when I saw Steve McLaren getting linked, um, I read somewhere that obviously Tony Ashgar's background is as an agent, and I think he's he knows Steve McLaren quite well through a previous life, if you will. So it seemed as if there was real legs to it, and the question for me was always, how can this actually be funded? Because... Uh, I think Steve McLaren's last job, he was earning something like 50 grand a week. And I know that seems obscene, but, you know, welcome to the English Championship. Um, that's Especially welcome to Queen's Park Rangers. Like, that yeah. seems to be their MO. It's just a burning bin fire of a league where people chuck money uh, in the vain hope of getting up to the promised land. But um, for Steve McLaren to take that job, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, as, Stinton, as your uh, England manager, that was 12 years ago now, which is mad. Um, but he is to a certain extent still not damaged goods, but people don't give them the credit that they should. Uh, and 
I think what Brendan Rodgers' time at Celtic maybe did is it maybe opened up some English manager's eyes to, I could go up to Scotland and do a really good job and rehabilitate my reputation in a way I might not be allowed to do in the English leagues. Because uh, it's, not, it's not unlikely, but you couldn't really see another championship team taking a punt on Steve McLaren. Maybe a, a team like a Sunderland who are in League One and expect to be going up, they might go for him. But I think his, his stock has fallen to such an extent in England that he maybe needs to... He was, you could maybe see him looking for a reboot. And he might, in order to do that, be happy to take a bit of a pay cut to come up north. Yeah. Um, but it always seems a little bit of a stretch. Um, and the fact that there was... Um, so this was all getting reported on Sunday night, I think, um, that he was interested in the job. I think he was interviewed on Monday. They were speaking on Tuesday saying, oh, there's still ongoing negotiations. And that was the point where I thought it's probably not going to happen because the ongoing negotiations are, were probably, you're going to pay me how much? No, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> um, so that's real time out. Now, I think um, I mentioned Tony Ashgar earlier and Tommy Wright. And one of the problems... Um, for Tommy Wright at Tannadice would be, I think what we saw at St. Johnson, particularly with his relationship with Kirstine Robertson, yeah. came in St. Johnson, was that Tommy Wright likes to have total control, or not total control, but you know, over the football inside, he likes as much control as possible um, over the club. So, you know, signings, training, whatever it might be. Um, but at Dundee United, Tony Ashgar tends to handle not all, but most of the signings, I'm led to believe. So I think Shankland was a, Tony Ashgar signing rather than being a Robbie Nielsen signing, for example. Um, so United have that slightly different structure in place, um, you know, similar actually to what Hearts have, um, but it's sort of gone on, on uh, under the radar a little bit. And so there's still a lot of people saying, I don't get why they're not going for Tommy Wright. And now there might be other reasons why um, a club wouldn't go for Tommy Wright, uh, whether that's uh, apocryphal or not, but he would not really fit into that system they have at United and I, I couldn't see him really going for that. Yeah, no, that that's the, the thing for me and Tom, Tommy Wright's a, a fantastic manager and, and if you're a club who doesn't have a, um, a director of football, like if it, or, I mean, or even someone that does but they've got a structure that's a bit more, there's a bit more flexibility in it, then, then I think it would be great but I think as much as Tommy Wright could come in at Dundee United and probably get them in the top six every year, but if that's not how Dundee United want to operate as a club in terms of they want they want to be, I think what their model is going to be is to try and bring through and sell on players. It's always been their model. And if you want a director of football, it's about the consistency that when someone leaves, so, so Robbie Nielsen's left, they need a new coach, but they've still got the same director of football, so they've still got the same strategy through the club. And when you're a bigger club, some people disagree with me. I think the director of football model in Scotland is suitable for the bigger clubs, so it's suitable for your your Hearts, your Hibs, Aberdeen. I'm not saying they'll do it, but that they, in Dundee United just about fall into that category where it's reasonable. And and if they want to work that way, well, you can't bring in a guy who is unwilling to operate in that because it's just going to be a clash. And then either they have to say Tommy Wright is such a good manager for us that we're going to th- rip all that up. And as much as I really like Tommy Wright, I don't think he's a, he's Apart from anything, he's not a dead cert. You've always got to worry. I always think when a manager's only done well at one place, mm-hmm. that it may not work somewhere else. It doesn't matter how you how good you've been. Someone look at David Moyes, and okay, he was going from Everton to Man United. He was fantastic, and he'd done well at two places. He's been at Preston as well, I suppose. But in terms of that league, he'd done well at um, Everton, and then at Man United, he couldn't do it. And and it, you sometimes see a, a guy goes to a so-called bigger club, and it's not. 
not going to work out. So you can't guarantee. Maybe maybe if Jose Mourinho was turning up and saying, no, "I really want to manage at Dundee United," I, um, you know, I've, I've missed kind of going to the V and E every Saturday night or whatever it may be. <laughs> Then maybe they would say, okay, we'll rip up our model for that. But for a for a Tommy Wright, I think it's too big a gamble. So I completely agree that that wouldn't be the way to go. Of course, by the time we go off, he'll have been announced as manager because that's how it works. But it didn't it didn't make sense to me from the start that Wright would be in for that. It's actually um, I don't know if you're planning to go into him anyway. It's partly the reason why I would be slightly puzzled by Malky Mackay as well because I might I know he worked probably with. Um, people above him because most English clubs have some structure like that but he doesn't strike me as a guy who's a really good coach he strikes me as a, a manager as much as he's I was saying a man manager and as much as he's had his, um, his issues in that side generally that was the thing that I thought he was more of a you know an, an old school manager get the players out on the park motivate them type guy rather than someone who's just there to coach them well we might as well uh, go on to him now um Malcolm Mackay. Um, so when he was linked, I got in touch with uh, various uh, associates of mine who are fans of uh, fans of Dundee United, um, mainly because I knew that it would rile them up. Um, this link, but as time went on over the weekend, it became pretty clear to me that I think the reason he was it was being floated in the press was clearly as a trial balloon. Uh, so it wasn't just that someone had heard here United have asked for permission. Uh, I think that. Although the owners are um, like I mean, similar to Dundee and Hibs, in fact, and Aberdeen, um, you know, the uh, owner of Dundee United is uh, an American. I'm, I'm not entirely clear how much involvement Mark Ogren has on a day-to-day basis. I think that Tony Ashgar is his John Nelms, if I can draw the link between yeah. the two. Um, but I think that there's clearly enough knowledge. You know, if you Google Malcolm Mackay, one of the first things that comes up is. Um, I suppose what we can safely call the unpleasantness um, from a couple of years ago. Um, so it is, it's an interesting debate, uh, and I say that because you know it's, it's one that has been endlessly had on fan forums and the like already, but um, I don't know how I would feel, because uh, I've seen quite a few Dundee United fans have uh, been online saying that they wouldn't um, you know, they wouldn't go back to Tannadice uh, while he's married. You know, they won't. They might have already bought their season ticket, but they won't spend another penny on United if they appointed him. And while I think that that sort of moral stand is admirable in many ways, it's difficult to know exactly what you would do if it was your own club. I mean, I don't. How would you feel if uh, Kilmarnock had a had a vacancy and Malky Mackay was being floated in the way that he has yeah, been for Dundee United? It's hard. That I remember it being discussed when when it was um, never. I don't think he was ever seriously being considered for it. From 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 what I gathered from. When I say for what I gather, I don't know anyone, but I just I, I know which sources are, are generally good. And um, I never think he would really have been seriously linked with the Scotland job. But at the time, I would be looking at it and saying, like, his CV is not good enough for that job apart from anything. Like, Steve Clark had a much better CV than Malky Mackay. Alex McLeish, despite it not working out, because that was the time that, um, that Mackay got mainly linked, I think, had a much better CV than Malky Mackay. So, so from that point of view, it was very easy for me to say as a Scotland fan, I don't want him as manager anyway. The challenge becomes, and I'm not saying this is the case because I don't know, but if you think that he's genuinely the right manager in terms of ability, then how much are you willing to overlook? 
is the question. And I don't know if Dundee United at the level, but once you come down to maybe a lower club in Scotland, they might say, okay, look, we're willing to take a gamble. Because this is my, my view on it in general is that I think he does have the right to to work again, and, and he is working right now. I do think he has the right to be, you know, the chance to have a second chance, but he doesn't have the right for it. It doesn't mean that it has to be at your club, and no individual club has to give him that chance. It's entirely yeah. up to them. And just because I can say, I can say, I don't mind if Malky McKay gets another job in football because I think, despite what he, he what he did was beyond the pale, he's, he's, he's apologised in a way, he's never really come out, because I think if you want to, after something like that, if you want to come out, you want to come out and say I know what I did was wrong this is why I did it, this is my, this is how I've changed and really properly have a kind of analysis of yourself, in, in hindsight of it I've just listening to the, the episode that um, that Craig Fowler put together in, in Racism the, the, the podcast where, where Marvin Bartley at the end was talking about the guy that had kind of sent him a racial, uh, some racial abuse over Twitter, and the guy messaged him, and, and it seemed like at some length to kind of apologise for it, and and explain why, you know, why he had apologised and how he he realised the, the wrongs of his, the, the wrong the wrongs of his way. That doesn't sound right. Um, the, it, it, the error of his ways. The error of his ways. Yeah. That's better. Um, and so I don't think Mackay. Why I why I think he has apologised publicly he hasn't done it like convincingly and so that's that's the challenge for me it's like I, I understand people who say yeah he should be allowed to work again because I think he should and, and again he's, he's been well paid to work in football right now okay in a, in a maybe less publicly visible role um, so I, I think he should be allowed to work in football but it doesn't mean that any fan has to accept him at their club it is, it's actually, I think it's a lot more difficult um, to work out than people would initially think because I saw, uh, I think it's uh, obviously the Courier and Eden Telegraph have been doing uh, quite a bit of coverage of the story um, and unlike some other newspapers I could mention, they actually mention um, the incidents in Malky Mackay's past which have uh, led some of the protests maybe too strong, some of the discomfort amongst sections of the United support about his potential appointment. But one of the things I did notice is that I think show racism the red card. Now, I'm not sure if this was before he was appointed by Wigan. So he's already actually had two, you know, people say he deserves a second chance. He had a second chance at Wigan and he basically led them to destruction. Um, and then he had his third chance at the SFA where he's getting paid £250,000 a year. So, you know, he's not... Uh, yeah, yeah, he's not being he, ostracised by football. No, he he is still making a living and a pretty decent living at that out of football. Um and as you say, it's more about whether or not it's at your club. But um, before one of the appointments, and we show racism, the red card put out a fairly lengthy statement, which said that, you know, um, and I wish I hadn't in front of me, and I really should have, but basically saying that he should get us, I keep using the phrase second chance, but, you know, he has completed the courses. He has, you know, all of the things that, you know, we've seen some journalists online um, say, you know, oh, um, you know, oh, he's shown uh, public uh, you know, he's recanted for his sins, etc. Publicly, and like you say, I've not seen that, and no one can really point to that. But show racism, the red card have said that he has um, I done, just what, think- done what they would expect. But I don't know how much of that is because they want, I say they, because it's important for people to see that you know, if if you do have uh, 
if you have succumbed to prejudice, if you will, in the past or saying things that you shouldn't have, that there's a way to go about making amends for that. And they want to make clear to people you can make amends that, you know, you, yeah, yeah. you can sort of come out of the trenches a little bit um, or how much of it is actually... A, Again, a, I, I would deal. expect as a, as a bare minimum that, that he should then become a, a public advocate for anti-racism, for anti-homophobia, mm-hmm. all of these things that I haven't seen him do. That, that would be my concern. As a manager, he's probably he'd probably be a reasonable candidate for the Dundee United job. If we, if we just talk about football, wise I say he did a, he did a fantastic job at Cardiff. I don't think anyone could doubt that. But but since then, and and to the extent that when he was at Cardiff, um, and and that's why it all came out, he he got linked with the Crystal Palace job, at which point the Cardiff chairman very much kind of little finger from Game of Thrones. Yes. Um. So so he's definitely got some pedigree as a manager, but. Again, I don't think he's. I don't think he's worth for Dundee United. I don't think he's worth the myself through that. For there, there are other candidates out there. Um, yeah. Not not on the list that they've got beyond McLaren, but there are other candidates out there. Because and I think this is quite a key point: is that you know this is Dundee United's first season back in the top tier for. I should know this easily enough. 16, 17, 17, 18, 18, 19, 19. Oh, that's four seasons in the second tier. When why, did, of, why are they in the second tier? I believe, I could be wrong on this, but I think it's because they were relegated at Dens by Dundee Football Club. I think that's what happened. Um, perhaps some listeners can get back and just confirm that for me. Perhaps with a picture of the winning goal, which absolutely sealed the deal. Um, but anyway, uh, getting back on track, um, you know they've, they've been down in the doldrums for four seasons um, in terms of the scale of club that they are. Um, you know, they're coming back up. Okay, they've lost the manager, so that's always going to put a little bit of a dent in preparations. But this is a chance to, you know, sort of rise like a phoenix, you know, um, you know, have a lot of positivity and enthusiasm going into the season. And it just seems to me appointing Malky Mackay is just, what what are you doing? Like, all that you're doing is guaranteeing four, the four weeks leading up to it being um, very tense arguments among the fans. Um, I know that from speaking to United fans that, um, I mean, it would be very unfair and generalising to say that there's a generational divide amongst it, but I think that some United fans feel that, you know, are very much in the sort of second chance camp. Um, you know, the the more combative might use phrases such as uh, snowflake and whatnot. Um, but, you know, there's some fans that are very much in the, it should be a football decision and that's that. And there's other fans who are in the more, no, this is problematic for numerous reasons camp. But with... Um, but with Malky Mackay, I think, as you say, what he has not done is, I forget his name, I think it's Dan Harmon who wrote Community. Um, those of you who are uh, pop culture obsessives um, might remember that there was a bit of a controversy around the way that he handled uh, female writers uh, on Community. I think he was, um, basically, he was sexually harassing them. He was, you Literally know... Literally handling them. Yes, he was, uh, he was very much... Um, you know, using his position of power um, to try and gain some, you know, um, murky influence and murky advantages from that. And he went on, I can't remember which radio show it was, but he he spoke at length about the sort of thing that we've talked about, you know, maybe Malky Mackay could do it, saying, you know, this is what I did, this is why it was wrong, this is how I know it was wrong. Um, you know, I hope that in the future, you know, people that, you know, it's easy to fall into a comfortable trap of, you know, saying these things and not thinking that they're hurtful or wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and almost being a case study of how to apologize and how to move on from those things and not to erase them or to bury them or put them in a box and say, well, that's all sorted. That's fine. 
uh, and acts as if it totally absolves you, but at least to create a public space where people can talk about it without immediately getting into the trenches of, you know, and, and history's is, greatest monster. He can't do it now either. He can't now. It's not like, now that I know there's uproar about me becoming Dundee United manager, it mm-hmm. seems really false then. It should be. It should be kind of out of the. You know, it shouldn't be at a crisis point of his career as such. Like now, it should be, and and that's 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 the issue for it. And as you say, they've got four weeks, and and I have sympathy. Sometimes a club can really see the departure of their manager coming. So I, I was I was quite critical of, of the way Kelly handled Steve Clark leaving last summer, and and obviously we saw how that went. Um, because it was obvious a mile off that Steve Clark was going to be leaving. And so there should have been work in place to get a replacement in from literally from like January onwards. And that way, okay, you can't guarantee that someone doesn't pop up. There should have been some planning in place. I don't think anyone really saw Robbie Nielsen leaving Dundee United. So I can I can understand them being caught on the hop a little bit. Yeah, and especially because the, the sort of ready-made replacements would have, would have been either McCulloch or Gordon Forrest, who are Nielsen's assistants, but it looks like they're going to Harps. So I think they wanted to have a, a little bit of a succession plan in place yeah. where they could, at least in the interim, uh, move on to those people. But now they can't do that. So now they're having to, as you say, at the last minute with very little notice, just you know, um, sort of cast a net far and wide to try and find somebody. Um, and all I know is I'm going to find it absolutely hilarious when I can dig out all the tweets a la Robert Borthwick um, proclaiming um, that Steve McLaren is about to become United manager when John Daly has unveiled in a few weeks. Yeah. What, what do you think in, in general about these kind of characters? So, so you've got John Daly there, Barry Robson's another one that's been talked about. Like It's, it's depressing. It's I mean, I've, I think I actually tweeted that one of the most depressing things about when your, your club loses its manager is when the McBookie list comes up and you go, is this really, <laughs> is this really the menu that we have to pick from? Because um, you'll always have Derek Adams, you'll always have Alan Stubbs, um, you might have Martin Canning in there as well. Um, you know, five ten years ago, Jimmy Calder would be the name on it. He's no longer on uh, the list. Um, but you know, it's a succession of names of managers that you're aware of that are out of work and have been out of work for a year or two that don't really excite you. They always chuck in, as you say, a World Cup winner uh, or a famous internationalist who's maybe managed in uh, the UAE and China um, and then a couple of ex-players. And, you know, um, the best you can hope for is to uh, have a bit of a hearts moment where Daniel Sendel seemingly came a bit out of left field and at the time seemed like a, an exciting, if unkempt, uh, appointment for them to make, um, although it didn't save them from relegation in the end. Um, but I think... Yeah, sorry, I was sorry, I was just gonna say that the thing for me is with these guys is like they've got no experience and I don't understand why your first season in why are you why why are you willing to take a gamble on someone who has literally never managed at that level when unless you think they're amazing and but I, I get the feeling Barry Robson will be a good manager, but he should be looking at taking a job in the championship or below to just show what he can do. There's and I mean I don't I don't necessarily mean to link this into um, all of the, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter matters movement and everything uh, that's been going on lately. Um, but I did see somebody making the point that, um, you know, Saul Campbell, it, he was told, you know, you, know, you have to start at a low level. Yeah. You, know, you can't just go in at the top. Whereas Frank Lampard got a job at Derby County and then went on to Chelsea. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, there does seem to be a, 
I don't know why they do it in football, and I can't say that Dundee are immune from this because this has is actually <laughs> how our manager uh, got appointed as well. But um, at, least, know, at least you're in the second tier, so it's kind of like you're not going to get these top level guys. So you might there's more of a scope for gambling, but you're if you're if you're one of the top, you, Dundee United are going to be expecting to finish. Maybe I mean maybe unjustly because I don't know what the squad how the squad measures up, but in the top six, it's it's, an, it's a very appealing job. I mean, if I can just quickly read out at the time of writing some of the names on this uh, list. This is obviously from favourite to um, to less favourite. Um, Malcolm Mackay is now the the favourite at about evens. Mickey Mellon, the Tranmere Rovers manager, yeah, I'm, I'm convinced um, he's made up. Yeah, um, I've. He's apparently not even been contacted. Tommy Wright's so high up there. Austin McPhee got an interview. With the so so Austin, Austin McPhee would be hilarious. I really hope he gets it. I have absolutely no doubt that Austin McPhee will be an embarrassing failure as a manager whenever he gets the chance to do it. He's like a, he's like a snake oil salesman. And then you've got all the names that we've talked about already. So uh, Billy McKinley's uh, moving up in the odds. Um, Steve McLaren is still there just because people have put I mean, this is all bookies odds. So, you know, massive grain of salt. But some of the other names now, like Craig Levine's been linked with a comeback. That would be enjoyable. Yeah, I, I think. I think compared to some of the names that we've discussed, they would probably be better. <laughs> like, I mean, like Ross Tokley, Darren Fletcher, uh, Duncan Ferguson, purely because he played for United. But he's he's not going to leave Everton. He's got a cushy job at Everton. Yeah. Why leave that to get sacked because you've got United ninth? You know. <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. Um, it's pointless. Robbie Fowler's in there for some reason. He, um, he was managing, as there was managing uh, in Australia. I mean, what I um, I think the key thing for United is they've obviously got to get this appointment right. But as we've already alluded to, they've got four weeks until the start of the new season. So whoever comes in is going to have to, you know, get to grips with the squad, given it's someone who's not going to be involved at United at the moment. Um, so it's going to have to be someone who weighs up the squads, uh, can quickly delve into the transfer market for whatever United needs. Um, now, I know that usually rivals are uh, the best people to ask about um, rival clubs because they're obsessed with them. But genuinely, I'm not sure what United needs. Um, I think probably a centre-back. Uh, centre-back and a winger? I don't have a clue. They need, um, they, need, they need players in most positions. Like, they're not... Yeah. I, I would say there are a lot of holes in that team that you wouldn't fancy the players at, at this level. The other thing is, like, it's not like sometimes when a manager leaves and you've still got, like, a backroom staff where you can go... All right, okay, we'll, we'll let this guy run the show for a little while so that we can take our time. Literally, the entire backroom staff could be off to hearts, as you say, if McCulloch. And I'm not, again, I'm from experience having Lee McCulloch as your caretaker manager might not be a good idea anyway, um, or as your permanent manager. Um, but these guys are probably going to be away and literally do they even have any coaches at the club at that point? Like, like who, who actually suppose they, they couldn't find a manager. So, so like, would they actually have someone senior enough to take the team? And that's when the point becomes, right, we are actually in a bit of, um, a bit of trouble here. It would be amusing. I mean, Jim McLean's uh, still living in Dundee. Oh, so um, please, 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 please. That would be absolutely box office. Um, but no, you're you're quite right. They, they do have to act pretty quickly. Um, but I would imagine that if their idea of acting pretty quickly is to bring in Malcolm Mackay, that might not uh, that might negate the the benefits of acting quickly. Um, so um, obviously, I've always got Dundee United's best interests at heart. So if they could wait until July thirty first to appoint Malcolm Mackay, 
um, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, now, to round things off, we are going to cover the next game in the uh, series of Classic Scotland matches. I can't remember which number this is. Neither, neither can I. It's 30-something. It feels like we've been doing it. A top 50 was very ambitious. Like, I don't know when we're, when we're ever going to finish it. That's why... That's why I keep saying, like, let, let's just do this, because um, there's only one way to actually get anywhere near the end. We will literally never run out of content this way, so that's the main thing. Um, so instead, what we are going to look at is the Scotland 1, Switzerland 0 from Euro 96. Can you tell that I'm stalling, because I'm desperately trying to find the exact date? It's yes, the 18th of June. The 18th of June. I knew I could go to Mr. Stats and he would have it. Well, right only because I brought up the um, the top 10 as I like to do it, and, and it's pretty strong um, on this occasion. The number one um, on the 18th of June 1996 was Killing Me Softly by the Fugees. Um, it's a good start. Number two, Mysterious Girl by Peter Andre. Mm-hmm. Um, number three, Always Be My Baby by Mariah Carey. Not one of her songs that I, I know. Then number four, Three Lions is on there. And then you've also got um, The Day We Caught the Train by Ocean Colour Scene in the top 10. So I thought that that's a pretty strong um, top 10, considering it's some of the ones that we often come up with. It's almost as strong as that now 33 that Craig G. Telfer was speaking about on the latest uh, lockdown pod. But yes, about it was, the same time. <laughs> it would have been, yep. And it was... Um, Sadly, not enough to get us into the quarterfinals of Euro 96. Um, so for those of you who need your memory jogged, we had lost to England 2-0. You don't need to really uh, think too hard to remember that. Obviously, that was the famous Gaza goal. Uh, we then drew 0-0 with a Dutch side. Now, the Dutch, the Dutch side game was, is first. It was, the, it was the first game. Yeah, sorry. Um, but it's, it's a pretty handy Dutch side. But what those results teed up for us was basically that we needed to beat Switzerland and we needed England to beat... Netherlands and we needed I think a five goal swing yeah so um so I mean the listeners can probably guess exactly what goal swing we actually got in the end um but uh, it needed a famously goal shy uh, Scotland side at that time to pull their finger out and hope that the old enemy would do us a favor uh on the other side of England at the time yeah and I think that that idea like a five goal swing it sounds like a hell of a lot because it is a hell of a lot I yeah I don't remember, I was a very, very young at the time. We were just discussing this. We were both almost like exactly the same age at this point, um, ju- just about to turn seven, I suppose. Um, yeah. I don't imagine there was a great deal of belief that we, I think there had been a great deal of belief that we could beat Switzerland because they hadn't shown themselves to be particularly great during the tournament, like they were okay. Um, but I don't imagine many people thought we could get a five-goal swing. England had been pretty good against us, but not amazing. Like we should have probably got something in that game, and they were they were very disappointing against Switzerland in the opening game. I actually watched that back recently when ITV was showing it, um, uh, and and it wasn't a good game. And England were were a bit off colour um, that night, so I suspect people didn't go into this with much hope. And. Again, I think it was, um, you've probably got the stat there, so I'm just going to embarrass myself and say it was something like 385 minutes of international football without a goal for Scotland. I didn't Uh, have it in front of me, but we certainly hadn't scored in the tournament, which would have been the games, and I think we had struggled in the the pre-tournament qualifiers as well. Uh, Sorry, not qualifiers, the pre-tournament like friendlies. So when you add it up, it's it's really not looking great for us, but we actually had two terrific chances uh, within the first 10 minutes. Um, It's actually quite difficult to find highlights of this game, but I managed to find a daily motion video uh, which contains uh, 10 minutes of it. And obviously Ali McCoyce, uh, a rapidly aging Ali McCoyce, was leading the line for us and he had two fantastic opportunities to set us on our way. But 
a little bit of inspired goalkeeping and maybe not the best finishing in the world uh, conspired to keep it nil-nil at the start. Yeah, yeah, the, the two chances McCoy's had, especially the second one where he's com- the ball comes to him in the box and he's completely unmarked um, about eight yards out and he just yeah. doesn't quite get it out from his feet in time and then he tries to go, I think I think he should just smash it into the corner but he tries to go across the goalkeeper but he basically hits it straight at the keeper and it's funny, the game is at Villa Park and you can see it's, it's a really, I mean, it's, I think it's probably one of the best stadiums in the country actually. Every time I watch a game on TV, mm-hmm. I'm always very impressed by Villa Park and you know, there's a really good angle where you can see Scotland fans behind the goal and as the ball comes to McCoist, you can see them all like getting ready, getting really ready. jumping up in anticipation and then you see the disappointment as it goes down because yet yeah, he was he was a player that Scotland were relying on to get goals. When you look through the team, yeah, there's other there's other um, players that are, are in there and, and McCoy's hadn't been picked in either of the first two games. He, he hadn't he hadn't appeared at all in the um the opening game against the Netherlands. He came on as a late sub. Um in fact he was he was on at one 0 in the England game and then yeah this was his kind of first chance to start up front. And I think he was being relied on because the rest of the team didn't have a lot of goals in it. It, it had um Gordon Jury was the other forward really and Jury was never a fantastic goal scorer for Scotland. Uh, but interestingly, what we saw is, I think Craig Brown's uh, picked up a reputation for being a fairly conservative uh, manager uh, for Scotland. But what we did see on the hour mark was, um, I mean, oh, you, you've got to do it, so I don't know how much praise we really should give him, um, but he took off Tosh McKinley and put on Scott Booth yeah. um, to, to move to three up top. Um, it's safe in the knowledge that I think by that point, I think England were two or three nil up. Yeah. Um, so it was becoming a little bit more of a reality. And what you actually see in the video is you hear the fans celebrating like a goal's gone in and the goal has gone in, but it's gone in uh, down at, I should know exactly. Where they played all their games at Wembley, I think. Of course they played all their games at Wembley. Um, and it would have been uh, Teddy Sheridan's uh, second goal of the night and England's fourth. So at that point, with in fact, right up until the 78th minute of that game, um, Scotland were going through to the quarterfinals and going through to the knockout well, stages. We should, we should say the, the reason for that time. is that McCoy did eventually score because I don't think I think we skipped that. Yeah, we've we've totally skipped the fact yeah. that he he yeah, missed two have... much easier chances to score an absolute howitzer from about thirty yards out. Yeah, it's it's one of Scotland's best tournament. I know there's not many to choose from, but it's probably one of Scotland's best tournament goals that, that, that there's been. I think you could put you could put David Neri against Brazil, um, which was the game we talked about the last time we did this, and you could put. Um, the Archie Gemmel one Gemmel's, against the Netherlands yeah. um, uh, there aren't many better goals than, than this because it's just, just an incredible strike from McCoy it's one of those as soon as it leaves his foot you know it's in as well um, and and yeah you, 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 it's often the case that the, the player misses like so much easier chances and then battles in like something you don't expect and, and that was just, just before half time so that yeah that sets it up because as you said that half time we were 1-0 up and England were... I think it was so 0-0 um, in their game. They were 1-0 um, up as well. Sorry, 1-0 up. Yeah, Shearer had scored a penalty, so they were 1-0 up. So at that point, we were going into halftime still needing a three-goal swing, even with things staying as well. And as you say, um, Brown went for it, because as you say, he probably had had to do so, because... 
you make as well just, say just secure the three points, boys. Don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah, um, but but yeah, what you saw is yeah. I, I say the goals went in. Um, it's something I do remember. I do remember as a wee boy. I think my my dad played football at the time, so I'm guessing he was probably like watching it after training with his team or whatever. But I remember sitting with my mum watching this game, and I remember McCoy scoring, and I remember it cutting across to Wembley as England kept rattling in goals in the second half. So yeah, um, Sheringham made it. Um, in the space of 11 minutes in the second half they went from 1-0 to 4-0 and at that point um, so for 16 minutes Scotland were heading through between sharing and making it 4-0 and then um, Clivert rattling one through David Seaman's legs and it was a bit of a, a blunder from Seaman I remember distinctly going across back across to Wembley and that goal going in and just thinking like even as a wee boy my mum kind of saying you know that's, that's Scotland going out again Um and so, yeah, there's that element. It's very strange that that Euro 96 team isn't talked about particularly much because that is a team that were on the verge of making a quarterfinals. A team that, once you get to the quarterfinals, the Euros, I mean, it's, it's anybody's game at that point. I'm not saying we could have won it, but it wasn't a particularly strong tournament. I'll say we could have won it. Because um, if you have a look at the... So that Dutch side went through to play France, Um and obviously, I mean, this was a French team just two years before they uh, lifted the World Cup. So you would maybe think, oh, well, that's, you know, I'm sure France railroaded them, but they really didn't. Uh, I think it took penalties to separate them. Uh, and then it took penalties in the semi-final with the Czech Republic as well. Yeah. Um, so both matches uh, finished nil-nil. So, I mean, it's, it always seems a little bit ludicrous to say, you know, Scotland could have really gone far in the tournament. But I think if there is a tournament that could suit Scotland it would be the Euros because you can purely by the numbers involved the luck of the draw um, the relative lack of uh, you know uh, teams from other uh, parts of the world as well so you know that that familiarity with the players and whatnot you could see Scotland getting much further if they have a kind draw and they certainly did then and Scotland's team was at the time it it wasn't great, but it had, you know, like John Collins was there. Yeah, uh, well, we can look, through, as well. we can look through, the, through the team, uh, Andy Gorham and goals, the back force, Tosh McKinley, Colin Calderwood and Colin Hendry, which is a strong centre-back pairing. Tom Boyd at left-back. You've got Burley, McCall, McAllister and Collins in midfield and Jury and McCoy up front. That's a strong team. Yeah, and you've just ranked by saying Gary McAllister. The, as you said, Sar, we were, I mean, I think we're within about a week uh week of each other in terms of age. So my football tournament memory goes, I had a World Cup 94 ball and I remember having that, but I remember nothing about the tournament. France 98, I remember so much because that's the one that's really burned into my, yeah. you know, burned into my memory. 96 was somewhere in between the two. So I've got a few little memories and I remember Gary McAllister missing the penalty against England and Gaza going and scoring. I remember England going out on penalties. And the other thing I remember is, and it's weird, I didn't remember it until I saw it, Gary McAllister in the second half basically threw on goal but at a tight angle if he cuts it back to Ali McCoyce Ali McCoyce has got an open goal to shoot at now he might have blazed it over but he would have probably done a lot better than what McAllister did which was basically just tap it back to the goalie and mm-hmm. hold his head in his hands and you know that's a potential sliding doors moment 
The other thing I remember from that tournament is Ed Davos Rooker making Peter Schmeichel look like an arsehole in the group stage game with a like, ridiculous chip as well. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, that was, uh, there, were, there weren't great opportunities once it was 1-0, but there were like a lot of these half chances and wee bits here. And Goro makes an, an incredible save um, from a Swiss player near the end as well. Um, at which point we're, we're needing a goal, we're chasing the game a bit. Um, I think in, yeah, it was just, it was one of those, yeah, it's, it's quite frustrating. Um, it's interesting to look through the Swiss team. Um, their two centre-halves both played for Celtic uh, on show in Vega. Not at the time, I don't think either of them. They both played for Celtic afterwards. Um, and then the other one that I, I kind of took a double take when I saw his name was uh, Johan Vogel. Because I'm like, I remember him playing for Switzerland like a few years ago. Um, and right enough, he, he was still in the Switzerland team at the 2006 World Cup. Um, so that, that that's... I mean, I know it's only 10 years apart, but it's funny when you, you see these two years mixed together because none of that Scotland squad, because it was, I guess, a bit of an older team, were anywhere near still playing for Scotland in 2006. And so it's very funny to, to imagine one of the Swiss players still doing so. Yeah, and I think that was a that was a frequent um, charge leveled against Craig Brown was that he maybe didn't uh, bring in enough younger players, because especially if you look at the France 98 squad, can't think of too many, too many new players, if you will, being brought in over and above what was there in '96. There might have been a couple of changes, but it wouldn't necessarily have been, you know, 19, 20, 21 year olds uh, coming in. And you know, it's often, or you know, some people say that that's what forced Bertie votes to cap anybody who looked vaguely Scottish um, for a couple of years. Um, but then, I suppose if you don't actually have the, the quality and international standard coming through, what's he supposed to do? Yeah, I think I think that's that's overplayed to some extent because there there were young players like that. I think it was certainly true from France ninety six Euro ninety eight, but actually the the um, the Euro two thousand qualifying. Um, I'm pretty sure down at Wembley in the the famous England game, um, Barry Ferguson started in the midfield. He had yeah. um, Mark Burchill was in the squad round about that time. Kenny Miller was just breaking through, so there were genuinely good international quality players coming through. Gary Naismith and Callum Davidson both came through it round about that time. So there were, I think Callum Davidson started that game and he just left St. Johnston. So there were the, he was, I think he was willing to take a chance on players who he thought were good enough. Um, I think Betty Votes was willing to take a chance on players whether he thought they were good enough or not, just to give them a go. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, I think this, this was an aging team. That's, that's certainly fair. Um, and I think that's maybe what caught up with them in the end was just that it, it felt a bit like I, not many other people have watched it, but I watch it regularly. Um, the highlights of when Kelly um, stopped 10 in a row for Rangers um 97, Ali Mitch was going the last minute. And the highlights just show the Rangers players like going through the motions, like everything just seems to be a wee yard ahead of them. And, it, and it's a set of highlights, which I think more than most show a group of players who are just like, aged like they're just a bit too old yeah. um, and, and I think this maybe is the same it just they, they couldn't quite get over the line but then they did come back with not many changes and get to France 98 so who knows um, but yeah it, it's, a, it's a really frustrating one this game I've actually got it on because I think BBC showed this game as a whole recently I think but I've, I think so. I've got it on my series like, but I've not watched it yet because I think Craig Fowler was talking about doing classic matches from that year he'll probably not do this one now and it's, it's not very classic anyway but um, no I mean the, the only thing that I enjoyed watching about it was it was almost the 
I love being at those games where you need results or you know, you're either reliant on results not going a certain way or going a certain way yeah, yeah. in another game and you can feel it coming out from the crowd. And um, you get a big it's, it's getting a big cheer when absolutely nothing is happening at the game you're at. It's it's really fantastic. Like yeah, it's one of the one of the downsides of the behind closed doors and now like watching the German finale at the weekend. You didn't get that. You didn't get the the fans cheering as other goals went in. You just got well, I, I tried to avoid any fake fans, but you just even if you were that wasn't coming through. So it was like you're you're missing one of the elements of what makes a really good like last day battle. Yeah. Um and at least this time um nobody was paying uh England to beat anybody ten two. Um not that, that would ever happen in Scottish football, of course. <laughs> um just for the clarity of that I'm sure it didn't happen. Um, but no that's uh that's another uh, classic Scottish game uh under the belt. So um we have entertained you or at least occupied you for either fifty seven minutes or twenty eight and a half minutes, depending on how much of a mass kiss you are with the podcast speed um so we will leave it there for now um but as usual thanks for all of your support and uh listening and ideas and whatnot um over the lockdown period um obviously things are opening up a little bit more now and people are doing more and more stuff that is not just sitting in the house listening to podcasts but every listener is appreciated um and as well as that everybody who is continuing to listen to our patreon um you will be or already actually have access to the series that you mentioned earlier, Craig, um, on uh, racism um, that Craig Fowler recorded with Christian Nadi, Marvin Bartley, Sean Clare, and Albion Rovers' Kevin Harper. Not, not Albion Rovers anymore. He left in the summer. Of course he did, and of course I have not picked that up. Um, that's a great end to the, the show. But yes, it's uh, it's four Scottish um, footballing figures uh, talking about their experiences of racism. It's, it's I think, one, I think, I think you've actually listened to all of it, haven't you? I've listened, I've listened to the edit that Craig put together for the main show, so I haven't listened to the individual ones yet. I will do. But I, w- I would thoroughly recommend, if you've kind of skipped over it, I thought I'll listen to it another time. Listen to it. It's, it's one of the best things that... that that I think the terrace is put together like I say the terrace is if it was anything to do with any of us other than Craig it's one of the best pieces Craig. of work Craig's done so it's definitely worth um, worth a listen um, just like if you're on the end of talking to Marvin Bartley the, um, and Joel's done an interview with him about his career I, I think he's a fascinating guy to listen to in general he just comes across very well so get get listening to that as well yeah but I, I listened to uh, Joel's interview with Marvin today and I think what's quite refreshing about it is that um, it goes beyond the sort of platitudes that you might get, and you actually do get a little bit of an insight into uh, into the way footballers think. So it is really good to listen to. And as for the racism pods, although I've not listened to them yet, obviously in our group chat, some of the um, some of the, the little vignettes of how players have experienced racism have have been mentioned, uh, and they seem jaw dropping just from the few little details I have, uh, such as Pizza Hut, um, which I'll leave there to to whet people's appetite, not for Pizza Hut, just for uh, actually listening to the story. Um, Anyway, enough of me waffling on. Um, I am uh, going to do what Gary Harkin said and uh, bow out gracefully at the top of my game. So thank you, Craig Anderson. Thank you, Gary. And we'll speak to you later. Cheerio. Bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.